Um, we're going to be in Malachi. We're going to start right at the end of chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to read the first five verses of chapter 3. All right, that's where we're going to be tonight. This is an intense passage of Scripture. This is an intense passage of Scripture. This is kind of a part where God tells Israel, you really ought to be careful what you wish for because you don't really know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're saying. And that's going to be true of us. That's true of all of us as people when we try to wrap our minds around God, when we try to say God is this or God is that apart from what God's word tells us about God. And, um, and so we're going to look together at that tonight. And the title of my message is The Justice of God. And so if you don't have a Bible or you don't have the Bible app on your phone, I do have the, the, the passage up on the screen so that you can see it as I read along. And so Ms. Pat very kindly is going to handle that. So Ms. Pat, you can go ahead and get that rolling up there. And I'm going to get started reading because I know I read kind of fast. All right. So Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, this is what it says. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and, who, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So last week, we looked at God's charge against Israel in regards to their faithlessness. And Israel was faithless to the covenant with God, right? They were faithless to each other and they were faithless to their spouses. And ultimately we talked about how all of that was idolatry and selfishness. It was people in Israel saying, I deserve what I want and I can disregard whoever or whatever so that I can have it. And so God builds off of that. He builds off of Israel's disregarding of the covenant and he addresses Israel's attitude toward himself and how he deals with sin. Now this passage here, one of the reasons why I like preaching through books of the Bible is because you can trace the line of thought. So in this passage, we see Israel with a wrong idea about God. Remember all the way back in the first few verses, we talked about Israel saying, how have you loved me, God? How have you loved us? They have wrong ideas about God. Then we talked about how Israel was bringing phony sacrifices to God. He talked about how the priests were not fulfilling their obligations. 
All along, we see God is building up to this. And here in this passage, he kind of hammers all of that. And he starts off by saying, you have wearied the Lord with your words. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Think about that. This is a God who the Bible repeatedly describes as long-suffering, as patient, as merciful, as kind. You have wearied the Lord with your words. What are those words? They say, but, but you say, how have we wearied him? And this is what they're saying. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Think about that for a moment. Think about what they are saying about God. Because God, as we've discussed here in our Malachi series, as I talked about last Sunday morning, as Pastor Mitch has talked about, God is holy. There is no impurity in him at all. There is no wrong, there is no falsehood, there is no evil, there is no darkness. He is pure. And so for Israel to say this about God, they're literally saying God is not God. Because God delights in evil. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Now, why would they say this? Remember all the way back in our first message out of Malachi. We talked about how Israel had come back from being in exile. And they thought everything is going to be awesome. It's all going to be wonderful. We just have to show up. That's not how it works. That's not what God was commanding of them. And they showed up and things were still hard. And so that's why they said God doesn't even love us. So here they are again. The people who are being cruel and oppressive toward them, they are, they are prospering and Israel is suffering. Now, sometimes, brothers and sisters, sometimes you are acting righteously and you are living your life according to God's word and things are still terrible. Sometimes that happens. You could do everything right and you can still get cancer. You can read all the books on marriage and parenting and your family can still be a big old mess. Do you know why? Well, first of all, because we're all sinners. But second of all, as we have been going through in Sunday school, talking about the life of Joseph, sometimes God has a larger plan that is only accessible by us through those hardships. So sometimes it really feels like I'm doing it right and everything is falling apart around me. And this guy down the street who is a sinner, who is doing all these horrible things, He's got a bigger house than me. He's got a nicer car than me. His kids are nicer than my kids. They're better looking than my kids. You know, everything seems to be going really well for him, and my life stinks. And that's not fair. Sometimes that's what happens. But most of the time, and what was happening with Israel, Israel did not deserve God's favor. They did not deserve to be blessed by God. 
They thought, well, I can bring polluted sacrifices into the temple and God will still bless me. And then they go, well, how come it's not working? Sometimes that's us. Sometimes I think, well, I read my Bible for 42 seconds every morning. I read three verses today. Why, is th- why are th- bad things still happening to me? Listen, folks. Had, a, had a, a pastor say this one time, and it resonated with me, and here's what I want you to remember. We like to say, why do bad things happen to good people? Here's the truth. That only happened once, and he volunteered. In case you didn't catch that reference, I'm talking about Jesus. He was a good person. He's the only one there ever was, and he volunteered for bad things to happen. All right, so let's just make sure we keep that in mind. But with Israel specifically, they thought, well, we're back in the promised land and God is going to bless us. No matter what we do, he's just going to bless us. And that's not, that wasn't working. And so they're seeing all their oppressors who are doing well and they think, well, God just loves evil. And the ones who aren't saying that, they are saying, where is the God of justice? Now, again, this is a statement about God because you know what they're really saying? God does not keep his promises. That's what they're saying because God has promised to be with Israel and protect Israel and care for Israel. And they're saying we're being oppressed and God doesn't care. Where's God? They're saying God is a liar. So we have Israel saying God loves evil and he delights in it and God is a liar man, I find it really hard to believe why God was not accepting their sacrifices. Hmm. What a shocker. They have wearied God with their words. Israel thinks two things in this scenario. Number one, they think that because they have carried out the basic concept of what the law requires, that they are righteous. God says, bring a sacrifice. I brought a sacrifice. Now, I know God says it has to be the best I have to offer. It has to be an unblemished and all that stuff. But, but I don't really want to do that, but I still brought a sacrifice. That's good enough, right? They think they're righteous because of that. And they think that God is withholding justice from them. I have acted righteously. God should do justice on my behalf. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I shall repay. That doesn't mean what we often think it means. And so here they are. And ultimately, here's what Israel is really waiting for. They've come back. The temple is there. And they think, well, how come God's presence hasn't returned yet? Because Haggai 2.9 says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. See, that's the promise they were banking on. We came back. We're doing the sacrifice thing. We're following the law. Where's God's presence? How come God hasn't returned like he said he would? And God's response to them in the first five verses of chapter three is literally, you better be careful what you wish for. So let's look together for chapter three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus with a message from John. John is in prison. And John says, are you the one who is to come or do we wait for another? John is saying, listen, I'm in prison. This is going to cost me my life. Please tell me I was right. You really are the Messiah, right? I didn't mess up. This, I'm, I'm right here, right? And Jesus responds to John in a fascinating way, and I don't have time to really dive into that tonight, but Jesus responds to John in a way where he quotes the Old Testament and essentially says to John, yes, I am the Messiah, and oh, by the way, you're going to die. That's how he responds to him in a way that John would totally pick up on that breezes right over our head, but he, that's what he, how he responds to John. And then he turns to the crowd and he starts to talk about John. And he says, listen, you all saw this guy out there. You know who he is. He's the crazy dude running around. He's eating locusts and wild honey. He's screaming at the Pharisees about how they need to repent. Because I guarantee you there's murmuring in the crowd. Well, John's in prison and now he's scared. He's scared now. And Jesus says, that's not what's happening. He says, as they went away, Jesus began, this is Matthew chapter 11, began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist right there. That is a prophecy come true, confirmed by Jesus. So, if John is the messenger, who's the Lord? It's Jesus. This passage is about the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is about. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there's a couple things there that I want you to pick up on. Number one, it says that he's going to suddenly come to his temple. You know what he's saying there? He's saying to Israel, listen, you think because you built a building that you are in control of what I do and where I go and when I show up, and you're not. You, as man, have no authority over me. I'm coming when I'm coming, and when I'm coming, I'm coming in a hurry. Then he goes on and he says, And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that is a callback to what Israel is saying about God, right? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And God says, Oh, you want to talk about delight? How about that covenant? that you keep profaning and violating, that covenant you delight in. That who, that's who the messenger is coming to represent, to call you to account for the covenant that you have not kept. Now bear in mind, every single person who Malachi is saying this to is dead when the messenger shows up. 
That happens about 400 years after this. They're all dead. Their kids are dead. Their grandkids are dead. And on and on and on. They're not there to see this. So even, even in this message, when God says, I'm coming suddenly, it ain't their idea of suddenly. It's God's idea of suddenly. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Wow. You, Israel, think you are righteous. Think you have standing to question God's, not just God's actions, but God's motivations to call God to account and say, you're not even a real God because you love evil and you don't keep your promises. And God says, listen, you want me to come to your temple? You can't even stand when my messenger comes, much less when I show up. And he says, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now, those are some references that might be a little bit foreign to us, and I'm going to tell you what they mean. First of all, the idea of a refiner's fire is someone who works with precious metals, okay? And so someone who works with silver, for example, do you know how they get impurities out of silver? They basically make an extremely hot fire and they melt it, and they use like a skimmer thing. All the impurities float to the top, and they scoop them out. Can you imagine? Think about that. A fire hot enough to melt silver. And he says that the messenger... Now, I want you to understand something here, okay? John the Baptist has no power or authority on his own. The messenger has no power or authority on his own. What has the power and the authority? Jesus Christ has it. But remember, what did John come proclaiming? The word. And what does John chapter 1 tell us about the word? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when John shows up and he's preaching the word, the message has the power. The message is like the refining fire that burns so hot that silver can't stand it. Fuller's soap is another reference. I actually had to look this one up the first time I ever read it because I'm like, I don't even know what this is. This is an extremely strong soap that's made with very high concentrations of lye. And it kind of like crusts over the clothes. And so what happens is they wash it with this special soap and then your clothes basically become like a board. So you know what they have to do? They take your clothes and they lay it on rocks and they beat it with sticks. That's how it works. So the imagery that Malachi wants Israel to understand is when the word shows up, it's not going to be good for you because it's going to be hot and it's going to be like getting beaten with sticks. How many of you have ever felt like that reading God's word? It hits you right in the teeth and you go, oh my goodness, I am a sinner. The message from the messenger is like refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Now, 
if you are familiar with the story of John the Baptist. He doesn't really have a whole lot of success getting the priests to turn to righteousness. He doesn't. Is God's word wrong? No. Remember what we talked about when we talked about the priests bringing polluted offerings? Who are the priests? We are. We are a royal priesthood. And so when we bring righteousness, we don't have any righteousness. However, there is a priest who has perfect righteousness, and that's Jesus Christ. And so we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us, and that is our offering. Literally, we cannot come to God and say, God, here's what I have. All I can do is come to God and say, God, here's Jesus. Here's here's what Jesus did. That's literally all I can offer. Israel is running around saying, look, I gave you my three-legged cow. What more do you want? He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. Brothers and sisters, Israel was beyond hope. They couldn't fix it. They couldn't. See, here's what happened. Over and over again in the Old Testament, there was this cycle, right? Israel would serve God, and then things would get good. And they go, eh, I kind of like that lady over there, even though she worships a different God. She's pretty. I'm going to marry her. Then they go marry her. Then they worship false gods. They don't serve God anymore. God says, hey, guys, knock it off. No, thanks. We're good. God says, knock it off for real or I'm sending you into captivity. No, thanks. We're good. God says, fine. Into captivity you go. Please, God, rescue us from this. We promise we'll serve you like children, right? Mom, if you don't punish me this time, I promise I'll never do anything wrong ever again. Lies, 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 lies. Over and over and over again, that was the cycle. And over and over and over again, God would say, Israel, repent and return to me and I will restore you. But here, God says, look, it's done. You, You can't repent. You can't come back. You cannot fix this. What is the only remedy? For him to come and fix it himself. Listen, Israel is a picture to us of what happens when we try to rely on our own righteousness. Because we can't. Because it just gets worse and worse and worse. And we get more and more self-confident in our own garbage. And that's what happens here in Malachi. They're offering trash to God. Stuff they wouldn't even offer to their local official. They're saying, this is good enough for God. So God says, I have to fix this, but it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. But the, the benefit is that God's people will be righteous again. Because when God comes, when the messenger comes, when the word comes, you will be refined you will be tested and come out on the other side. And that's what happens here. 
And then in verse 5. See, this is, this is just the precursor. This is just the beginning part. Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And some of you are looking at that list going, okay, all right, I'm doing okay so far. I've never cast any spells. Haven't cheated on my spouse. And at this time, that's exactly what they would have thought. Now, remember Jesus told us, listen, if you've even looked lustfully at another person who's not your spouse, you're guilty of adultery. But for them, they're going, well, I haven't done that. Uh, against those who swear falsely, eh, borderline. I, I never said I swear when I lied. I just, I just lied. Uh, those who oppress the hired worker and his wages. I mean, I don't, I don't have enough money to employ anybody. Um, I've, I've only been nice to widows. I don't really know anybody who's fatherless. I've never met a sojourner. So up to that point, yeah, I might be doing pretty good. And then he closes it out, and do not fear me. And brothers and sisters, listen. If you have ever sinned, then you don't fear God as you ought to. Because justice, the God of justice, if you want justice, here's justice. You sin, you're gone. Instantly, immediately. That is what Israel wanted for their oppressors. We all like justice when it happens to somebody else. But the God of justice will destroy you. And if you sin, then you don't really fear that. And so when, when he lists out all those sins and he says, I will be a swift witness against all these people, guess what? That's everybody. And he closes it off. Says the Lord of hosts. And we've talked before about what that means. That is to convey the imagery of how the Lord is the commander of all of the armies of heaven. It's essentially God's way of saying, and if you think I can't back this up, I can. I can. The justice of God is unrelenting. The justice of God is devastating and permanent. But God, in his mercy, has poured out his justice on his son. See right here? He is a swift witness against sinners. But again, what do we as God's people offer him? The righteousness of his perfect son. Praise God. I don't have to fear the judgment of God. Because I am in Christ Jesus. The coming of the Lord is good news for the believer. But it is terrible news for the non-believer. And here's the thing. I, I can't tell you which one you are. I can't. The Bible tells us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do you know why it says that? Because the thought of being 
unregenerate and facing God's judgment should terrify us. And so when we sin, you know what our attitude should be? It shouldn't be, oh, well, Jesus' blood covers it. When we sin, we should honestly, earnestly examine our heart and ask the question, is this a habitual sin or is this a momentary sin? Is this a pattern in my life or is this a momentary slip up? Because we are all flesh. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the things we want to do, we don't do. And the things we don't want to do, we do. But here's the question. Are they really the things you don't want to do when you do them? And only you can answer that. That's between you and God the Father and the Holy Spirit who indwells believers and who convicts us of sin and of righteousness. I can know you. I know my wife extremely well. I am confident that she is saved, but I don't know that for sure. She could be putting on a really good facade. I don't think so, but she could be. And so could any of you. There are people that we know who have lived their entire lives and we think they're a Christian devoted to Christ and they died and they went to hell. You know why? Because we, as the church, have reinforced for people. No, you prayed a prayer when you were seven. And we quenched the Holy Spirit's convicting work in people's lives by trying to convince people, oh no, you're totally saved. If you ever come to me and you tell me, you know, Pastor Corey, I'm really struggling with sin. I'm really wrestling with this and I don't know what to do and I'm really concerned. You know what I'm gonna ask you? How confident are you in your salvation? Tell me the story of your conversion. Tell me your testimony. Tell me the ways that God has sanctified you since you became a believer until now. Because that's where we have to start. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a phenomenal preacher, he said that he preached to everyone convinced that they were not believers. And he did that on purpose. Because he says when you think someone is a believer, you pull your punches on things like the judgment of God. You don't preach as hard on the coming of the Lord when you think, well, you guys don't really have to worry about that. You might. I might. Every single day, I examine my heart for evidence of sanctification. Now, I don't say that to you to make you question every single night as you lay in your bed. Am I really a Christian? Because here's the truth. If you mourn your sin, you're probably saved. Okay? If that's something that even troubles you at all, that's a good sign. It's when it stops troubling you. It's when you're like Israel and you bring rotten sacrifices to God and still go, how come God doesn't take care of me? That is when you have gone way off to the side. And so, brothers and sisters, what Malachi wanted Israel to understand was apart from the work of God, Israel had no hope. None whatsoever. And their only hope was to look forward to the coming of the messenger, the coming of the message, the coming of God himself, and being gifted his righteousness. That's all they could do. That's all we can do 
is to look to Jesus Christ because we cannot do it on our own. But one thing is for certain. He is coming again. He's already come once. And he will come suddenly. He will come suddenly. It might be tomorrow. It might be 400 years from now. We might all be dead. But one day, he's back. And this time, he's not coming as a baby in a manger. He's not coming as a carpenter. He is coming as a warrior. He is coming to judge the living and the dead. What side of that judgment are you on? That is the question for all of us today. That is the question for all of us every day. Am I fully submitted to Jesus Christ? Am I resting in his righteousness? Or am I offering broken sacrifices and disgusting works as my righteousness? Trust in Christ and Christ alone. Because in him, God's justice was satisfied. God's wrath was satisfied. And because of Jesus, we don't face the justice of God. We get the mercy of God. Praise his glorious grace forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, You are so good to us. We are so much like Israel in offering just whatever broken garbage we can muster up to you. And in us, you see Christ. From us, you receive Christ's righteousness as our offering, even though it is not our own. You have freely given it to us, and you have adopted us as sons and daughters into your family, Father. We're not just outsiders who have been forgiven. Our debt has been paid and we can now wander the wilderness alone. You have taken us in to your family forever. Praise your grace, your name forever. Lord, I pray for everyone here, Lord, that if they are here and they do not know Christ, I pray that he that his word would pierce their hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit and convict them of sin. And I pray that they would be saved. I pray for Pastor Mitch and myself, Lord. I pray that you would give us boldness to preach the word. Father, all throughout the Bible, when your people who preached were confronted, were criticized, were maligned, were attacked, they did not pray for safety, Lord. They prayed for boldness and courage. And I pray that you would give us boldness and courage, not just us, but your people, Lord, as we go out into a hostile world that hates you, that is so opposed to everything you are, Lord. I pray that you would give us boldness to speak the truth of the gospel because judgment is coming. And Father, if the world around us is going to hell, I pray that they would go leaping over our bodies to get there, that we would stand between them and the gates of hell, proclaiming the gospel all the while. Thank you, Father, for your word and the work that it does in us. 
And I pray that tonight as we go from here, that we would be comforted by your grace. That as we, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that, Father, you would show us grace that we could endure the day of your coming. Because you are good. And, Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, and the glory of all creation. Amen.